0: This is John Howell, Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS.
1: The FOP president, John Catanzara, is urging his rank and file to ignore city mandates to report their vaccination status. He says he'll take the issue to court, so when he, he has asked his rank and file officers, go ahead and report to work on Friday and uh, be sent home for not having reported your vaccine Vaccine status. The mayor hasn't responded to that. Let's talk to our former superintendent, Gary McCarthy, who was cashiered by former Mayor Rahm Emanuel while he was on his way to this program for an interview several years ago. It's always great to catch up with Gary. Mr McCarthy, how are you, sir?
2: You know what, I'm okay. You know, I got vaccinated. <laughs> I feel okay. How's your family? Um, family's good. Family's good. Today is actually my son's fifth birthday, um, which is pretty crazy you know, me yeah. being 62 and all, but,
1: uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Well, you only be 80 or so when he goes to college or graduates from college. You have that to look forward to.
2: Yeah, exactly. Why, exactly. why I'm, are I'm rank sure and file? going to take care of me.
1: Oh, I'm sure he is. <laughs> why, why are rank and file police officers resistant to the vaccination? If what I'm hearing is true.
2: Well, you know what? I, 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 this is going to be a very interesting court case. Let's put it that way. Um, You know, my personal opinion is that, um, I mean, I got vaccinated as quickly as I could. I don't understand the whole uh, paranoia about about vaccinations and people talking about putting chips in their body and so on. I mean, come on, guys, take it easy. We're in a worldwide pandemic here, and anything we could do to save our lives is probably a good thing. And I, I think it's incredibly ironic that the FOP is resisting it when, you know, that past president just passed away from COVID. So I, I I don't even know what to say about this one, except for the fact that sometimes we fight
1: just to fight. Um, and, you know, this is the last thing that Chicago needs, period. That was my um, next question. Is Zara essentially doing his rank and file a disservice? This is kind of a political battle.
2: Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think I think so. And you know what? Listen. I've spent 17 years at the top of the NYPD, uh, the Newark PD and, and the Chicago PD and I've worked with a lot of different people as far as unions are concerned and some of them were combative, some of them were cooperative, some of them were professional, some of them were juvenile and um you know you just don't know what you're going to get and um thinking back it's it's pretty weird that you know I've been here 10 years and there's been at least four presidents of the FOP, so I'm not sure that they've had any consistent direction or, or leadership, if you will. And um, you know, John's a guy who just likes to fight. I think, you know, I remember when I was superintendent and would come to meetings and scream with people and so on and so forth. And
1: Gary McCarthy I, I is here. In general, do police officers, first responders, have a higher responsibility to get vaccinated simply because they are regularly interacting with members of the public?
2: I mean, if you want to say responsibility, yeah, but their responsibility should be to their families. And and what's the best for them and their family? God forbid a police officer goes to the scene of something and brings COVID home to their family. I mean, that, that's what I'm thinking about. And, and I don't understand the resistance. I, you know, I get the whole thing about, you know, my choice and so on and so forth, but I mean, it's a worldwide pandemic. This is happening everywhere. The world has changed. And, you know, you don't have the right to endanger me. Let's put it that way. Right? So if somebody is not vaccinated, if somebody does not wear a mask and, you know, my son got big, contracts COVID, I mean, I'm going to be, shall we say, pretty annoyed. <laughs> I don't even know what the what the right uh, That's good. You know, motive anger would be. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's there. And I'm talking about if if that hypothetical occurs, if if their negligence causes something to happen to my family,
1: that's like the worst thing that could ever happen to me. You can't stand the fort if you don't help me defend the fort. Exactly right. Exactly. Gary McCarthy, well, I, uh, I wanted to get your take uh, on a couple things. I I perceive this may be anecdotal, but I perceive things were better when you were police superintendent. Just a quick comment on the current strategy of the mayor and the current superintendent, uh, Mr. Brown, to combat crime in Chicago.
2: Oh, I don't, I don't actually see a strategy. They've, they've abandoned all the things. You know, I've, I've been asked to speak about crime a lot re- recently because it's through the roof. And uh, quite frankly, when I look, they've abandoned all the strategies that we did. Um, they've, they've taken, one of the first things they did was I broke up. These citywide jump out boy units who did the enforcement across the city. And I put them into districts and put them into beats and held them accountable for what was happening in the beat. And guess what? We were breaking 400 murders going the other way, going down, which were 1965 murder rates in the city of Chicago. And we're on the verge of hitting 800 right now. And, and what, what's happened under this administration is, is they've reformed those teams, but they're called community service teams. So they're out there doing lawn mowing, pumping gas, and, and shoveling snow for people under the guise of, quote-unquote, building trust. Well, you can't build trust until you first have legitimacy. And I don't, I'm, not sure that's, I'm not sure that's too deep, but it's, it's really simple in my mind. If the organization is not legitimate if it's a political organization, which it happens to be right now, if, it's, if policies are being driven by politics, it's not a legitimate organization, you can never build trust. So I, it's, it's like we're taking the wrong medicines for what ails us. When you have a 13 year old out at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, carrying a gun as a shorty for, 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 a, for a, uh, an adult gangbanger, and an officer gets into a shooting and unfortunately kills him. We don't look at how we can prevent that from happening again. What what is that 13-year-old doing on the street on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the morning with a gangbanger? What we say is, let's have a foot pursuit policy. We're taking the wrong medicine for what ails us. And if politics is driving policy, we are continually going to fail.
1: Gary McCarthy, uh, Dean Angelo spent 37 years on the police force. He was the FOP president, I think, for three or four years. Your thoughts on his passing? I was saddened to hear that I knew he was sick, I knew he had COVID, but I was still shocked and saddened to see that he uh, passed away.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I found Dean to be a professional. and And not all these guys are professionals, quite frankly. They like to get in your face and argue with you, and it's like, you know, you're wasting your time, man. That, that doesn't impress me. Dean, on the other hand, was able to um, work with him, was able to work with us and figure out how to make things work uh, rather than just going toe to toe. And, um, you know, it's I'm, I'm sorry for his family. Um, and it's also really ironic that, you know, the FOP right now is in this position talking about vaccinations. When it past president it just died, it doesn't make sense to me. So I, the world doesn't make sense to me right now,
1: but that's where I am. Gary, uh, congratulations on your son's fifth uh, birthday. Are you still able to throw the football with him, or are the knees shot at this point?
2: Oh no, no, no! I pitch to him every day. I pitch to him every day, and I can't get a fastball by him inside. The kid's a, the kid's are stud. Okay. And I'm hopeful that he's going to stay that way. Let's put it that way. Does he, by chance, throw lefty? you know what? He doesn't throw lefty, but I just turned him around and made him start hitting uh, left-handed also, and he resisted it. And uh, all of a sudden, last week at his T-ball game, he said, Dad, Dad, I want to swing around and and hit lefty. And he had two line drives lefty. So I'm really encouraged by this, and uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of my time taking care of this kid.
1: I believe uh, Robin Ventura's dad did the same thing many years ago sounds right. Okay, Gary. And he had a sweet swing. Yes, he did. <laughs> Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, continued success in your uh, your endeavors in the private sector and we appreciate you jumping on with us. Always a pleasure,
2: John. Thanks.
1: Take care. Gary McCarthy here on WL.
2: This is John Howell Essential Cuts
0: on 890 WLS...
1: I want to welcome Sean Trendy back to the program. I read his piece at RealClearPolitics.com. Sean is the chief elections analyst at RealClearPolitics, terrific writer, and reading from this piece, every now and again, an otherwise arcane legal topic suddenly becomes relevant to contemporary political debate. The Logan Act, uh, the Jones Act, so it seems now to be with Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And I realize how problematic Jacobson can be. I used to work with her. So it seems to be with Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the previously obscure 116-year-old precedent. Essentially, the Supreme Court uh, said, and people have taken to citing this whenever anyone questions the legality or the constitutionality of vaccine mandates. If the decision were actually taken to the links that some of the proponents suggest, it would be truly terrifying. Let's start uh, there with Sean Trendy. Welcome back, Sean. How are you, sir?
0: I'm good, and I have only nice things to say about Amy Jacobson.
1: She can <laughs>
0: well, me on her show anytime.
1: As you remember, I worked with Amy for a number of years, I think nine, or maybe not quite nine, five or six for sure. So why is those who reference Jacobson versus Massachusetts as the be-all, end-all to why people must get vaccinated, why is that so terrifying in your mind?
0: Well, Jacobson is 115 years old, and it was decided at a time when the Supreme Court really did. You know, this is the same Supreme Court that gave us Plessy v. Ferguson. It wasn't very, uh, which is separate but equal, it wasn't very uh, attentive to constitutional rights. And so you have this decision out there that says, hey, yeah, there's some concerns about bodily autonomy, but if it's rational, it can give way to it. And so there's just so much potential for constitutional rights to be subordinated. Um, just on a really cursory review under this decision.
1: As you said initially, wasn't this? I, I know it came from a Swedish born Lutheran minister uh, out of uh, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm going to skip over his story, but you already mentioned uh, as far as the touching by a physician. Wasn't this basically propped up to, you know, similar to prisoners? It was determined that prisoners have a significant liberty interest in avoiding. Antipsychotic drugs, so that that upheld the exception to this. But for the general public, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, essentially, well, if you interpret it broadly, you have to get the vaccination.
0: Yeah, so like Jacob, the facts in Jacobson are are really unique. You had to pay a you could you had to get vaccinated, or you could pay a hundred fifty dollar fine. Uh, that's it, and that's all the Supreme Court's really signed off on. Um, it, it's completely up in the air how how much more coercive the government can get uh, in terms of its vaccination mandates because the Supreme Court has also since then developed a large body of case law on the idea that you do have a right to refuse treatment Um, that doesn't mean it never gives way to any concerns you know it doesn't mean that every variation on a vaccine mandate is unconstitutional it does mean that the court has said it's a big deal and should be treated as such
1: does the application of the bill of rights does that primarily reside with the states or the federal government
0: yeah so when jacobson was decided the bill of rights hadn't even been applied to the states yet it was just with the federal government now all the provisions of the bill of rights just about have been applied to the states so the fact you know so jacobson didn't even consider things like first amendment freedoms freedom of religion because it was completely it's to think of it that way is completely anachronistic
1: I have uh, listeners who write to me regularly about uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Why are liberal groups eagerly defending it?
0: I don't know. You know, the ACLU has traditionally taken a dim view of vaccination mandates. In 2008, they called forced vaccinations police state tactics. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it's just another one of those instances where, you know, people get involved, think an issue gets split on partisan lines and. People, you know, kind of shoehorn things into that partisan metric as they need to do, um, but it's not something that you know, a, someone who has a strong has a strong view of a robust Bill of Rights should be celebrating.
1: Is this another example of situational ethics?
0: Yeah, I, I think there is some of that going on. You know, the, the something gets associated with the right, and so people on the left feel the need to take an opposite position, and, and the right does it too. I, I don't mean. To point fingers. But, and so then once you realize you have to switch sides, you then go around and try to figure out the rationalization for doing so.
1: Sean Trendy is here from RealClearPolitics.com. He wrote an extensive article. I recommend it. We'll put it up on our socials. You should read it, especially if you're interested in constitutional law. Now, there's nothing in the pipeline that would essentially question Jacobson versus Massachusetts. But if there was, the Supreme Court would still be very reluctant to directly overrule previous decisions, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, it can look at the, it can look at the fact uh, that, you know, Jacobson came into existence before the right to refuse treatment was recognized, before the Bill of Rights was uh, applied to the states. And so that probably undercuts some of the rational, rationale for giving it full precedential effect. Um, but at the same time, it's unlikely to completely overrule it. But again, Jacobson was just a case about a hundred fifty dollar fine. Um, you know, it, it was a pretty nominal penalty for not complying with the mandate.
1: So, in other words, if I say getting a vaccine mandate, uh, and I'm all for the vac- vaccination, I'm not sure about these overriding mandates. Frankly, it, it's it's not the same as saying, well, you need to be vaccinated to attend school, or this is just like a seatbelt law or drunk driving laws.
0: Yeah, I think the vaccine, you know, uh, I think there's going to be a big fight over vaccinations for schools with this one. Um, I I do think, you know, schools, if if a school system wants to do it, you know, there's a lot of precedent for schools requiring vaccinations for a, a wide variety of things. But when you get to things like school, if schools were to require vendors to get vaccinated or if the government were to get even more aggressive uh and what it requires. Um, you know, and and we can speculate on what types of things government might do. And that's when it's gonna probably run into problems.
1: Sean Trendy, while I have you here, senior elections analyst for RealClearpolitics dot com, I read the Ezra Klein piece in the Sunday New York Times where he points out, and this is based on a Democratic pollster that everybody now references, uh, who was fired from a previous job for pointing out the obvious But Ezra Klein wrote that essentially, on the Senate side, the Democrats are staring down November of 2022 as a disaster and November of 2024 as an incredible disaster. Do you concur?
0: You know, I'm less certain than he is about 2024. I think 2022 is going to be a rough year just because President Biden uh, is, is pretty unpopular right now. Um, they can write the ship by 2024, and I've always been skeptical of big picture demographic arguments because things shift quickly in politics. But if things don't shift, yes, the fact that Democrats are losing ground, uh, especially among working class men of color, um, that that is that is a very grave threat to their coalition.
1: Because as much as we hear that Biden won by 7 million votes in the popular vote, okay, I buy that, obviously, but it was really 45,000 key voters in key precincts in three states, Midwestern states.
0: Yeah, he doesn't, people talk, you know, this is another kind of situational ethics thing, but people talk, went on and on about how close uh, Trump's win was in 2016, and he didn't have a whole lot of room for error. Well, that's true of President Biden as well. Uh, He has almost no room for error uh, and letting his coalition slip going into twenty twenty four.
1: Sean Trendy, how are things in Columbus? Are you still rooting for the Ohio State Buckeyes?
0: Always, and it's it's beautiful. This is the best fall ever so far.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll let you get back to the bunker. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Take care, Sean Trendy, senior elections analyst for realclearpolitics.com. dot com.
0: You're listening to John Howell Essential Cuts on eight ninety WLS.
1: We've been making progress with the battle against COVID, but how bad might this COVID winter be? They made a few statements at uh, the the White House today, which uh, raised a few eyebrows. We'll get to that uh, directly. I hope we're not heading for an iceberg. That's my transition material into our next guest. He is a very well-regarded Chicago author, William Hazelgrove. He's a national best-selling author, uh, including uh, books on the Wright Brothers, Uh, How Wilbur Wright uh, Solved the Problem of Flight, Madam President, the Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson. She was probably our first woman president, quite honestly, for the last 18 months of President Wilson's administration after he had a stroke. He's written a great book on Teddy Roosevelt. In this book, I'd like to read Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. His latest is just out, 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the Titanic. Welcome to the program, William. How are you, sir?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, at the heart of this story, and this is why I'm very interested in this, and I'm holding the book in my hands, two young Marconi operators, Jack Phillips, 25, Harold Bride of 22, really the heroes for every survivor of the Titanic. Explain why.
3: Yeah, they had wireless telegraphy, new technology, sort of like the internet in the early 80s. They send out these, uh, they they hit the iceberg, Titanic sinking. only has 160 minutes to live, that's why it's at 160 minutes. Captain Smith goes down and says, we need, we need you to send out the signals, the distress call. They send out a CQD come quick distress, and this turns into a rescue operation, which, which people don't know about. Ten ships turn around and immediately start heading for the Titanic with only 160 minutes to go.
1: Had that uh, technology not existed, it would have been a total loss for the Titanic, Yes.
3: Absolutely. If 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 that technology hadn't been there, we wouldn't know what happened to Titanic. It'd be like, what happened to Titanic? Because this is what happened before: ships would just disappear and nobody knew what happened. For the first time, these two young twenty-somethings are sending out these hurricane waves, which, by the way, could bounce all the way at night into Manhattan, which they did. So, a guy named David Sarnoff is sitting on top of a wanna make store, and he he actually gets the signal.
1: Sarnoff got the signal.
3: Yes, yeah. He was sitting there. He was just. Uh, makers thought it was sort of a cool thing for customers to be able to send out a, a message. He's sitting there. His headphone goes off. He runs and tells a little newspaper called the New York Times, and they get the scoop of the century.
1: I, I hate to be a spoiler. What happened to Jack Phillips, the twenty-five-year-old, and Harold Bride, the twenty-two-year-old?
3: Okay, so Jack Phillips, he, they, you know, they stay right till Titanic sinks. Jack Phillips goes down with the ship. Harold Bride survives. And he becomes the most coveted man in the world because he has the whole story of Titanic. And the New York Times pays him $1,000 to sit down with him right after when he lands in New York and give them the scoop of the century and tell them exactly
1: what happened. This isn't really revisionist history. This is never discovered history that you found.
3: Absolutely. All my, all my books are fully footnoted. I used, uh, actually, the, the Senate investigation, a lot of the testimony there. It's, it's all in plain sight because the truth is there were two captains, Captain Lord and, and Captain Moore, who could have come in. Their, their ships were 10 miles, 5 miles away, but they didn't enter the ice field. So, so the, the striking thing is that Titanic, actually, all these people could have been saved if it were not for human failing.
1: Did they receive the signals, or did they not have the technology?
3: Uh, the, the one Captain Moore received it. He came within five miles, stopped his ship, because he didn't want to go into this ice field the Titanic was trapped in. And so his passengers went up top, and they see the ship sinking with rockets going off. Well, they later told the press, and this is how we know, Cap- and Captain Lord, his, his operator had gone to sleep, but he clearly could see. Titanic sinking and he kept saying, No, that's not Titanic, that's not Titanic. It gets worse. Captain Smith on the Titanic, he tells the people in the boats, row toward that light. See that ship right there? Row toward that light. He'll rescue you. Of course, the people row toward the light and they never get there.
1: Uh was that captain considered prudent or cowardly in the eyes of history?
3: He was found actually guilty in the Senate inquiry um in New York and he was stripped of his command. For not coming to the aid of all the passengers from Titanic, his reputation was ruined.
1: Are you ever going to? And this is William Hazelgrove, a Chicago-based author. I'm holding in my hand a new book, 160 Minutes: The Race oh. to Save the Titanic. Are you ever going to do anything on the uh, Eastland disaster? Here,
3: you know, a lot of people ask me that. I, I'd love to get into that and see and see what the real story is. And all all my books. Uh, John, is I try and get into the mythology. You know the, yeah. the books you were you were talking about before, Madam President, Al Capone, Teddy Roosevelt. I try and get to the real story, and, and, and that's what, and it's usually much more fascinating than the mythology that's been handed to us.
1: I was talking to my daughter, but she saw the book on the kitchen table this morning. And I, was, I said I'm going to talk to this author this afternoon. And I said, "Are you aware of the Eastland? You know, she grew up here in Chicagoland. No, never heard right. of it. And so I explained to her. I said, 800 plus died right here, at Clark Street and the river uh, down here when it rolled over. In part because of the laws that were passed after the Titanic to include more lifeboats, which made the Eastland top heavy.
3: Yeah, you're right, exactly. And the the Or is that
1: mythology? Wants, is that right. mythology?
3: Yeah, exactly. So, so there is a real story there, you know. I'm sure if we dig under, because it's so strange that that thing just turned turtle right there in the middle of Chicago, and all those poor people got trapped under it. And Uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating story. It
1: is. And then I told her too, and I hope this is correct. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I said the bodies at that time, 800 bodies, had to be put someplace. The the place that they could bring most of those bodies was on Randolph Street. And it was at an armory, which turned into Oprah Winfrey's Harper's, Harpo Studios. Is that true?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm going to segue back to Titanic real fast. One one of the dark tragedies of Titanic is that when Titanic sunk, fifteen hundred people are in the water. Now there's twenty lifeboats surrounding them, full of mostly the first class. Only one boat goes back. Uh, you know, everybody said, like, we have to go back and help them, because these boats were only half loaded. They could take another 400 people. And they said, no, we're going to get swamped. So, so this is the dirty secret of Titanic, and people said that the sound of those people in the water was like locusts on a summer night or when a ball game gets hit and the crowd roars. People, people committed suicide because they couldn't get that out of their head. But, but again, the, these are some of the things that have been pushed down in Titanic mythology.
1: Well, I want to get the uh, Capone book, too. Uh, William, continued success. I'd like to have you back sometime to talk about Edith Wilson, uh, who might possibly have been our first woman president way back when, uh, the uh, first World War I era when uh, President Wilson had a stroke.
3: Oh, no, i love to do it. That's actually, uh, they're making a movie out of my book on that one. So I'd love to come back and talk about the secret presidency of Edith Wilson because that's a story, fascinating enough, that most people don't know that the country was run by a woman from 1919 to 1921.
1: Was she in charge during the pandemic, or was Wilson still viable during the 1919 pandemic?
3: No, she was in charge as well, and, and, and you know, and, and she was doing everything she could to just kind of keep her fingers in in the dike, as you know, as Wilson because Wilson was had a massive thrombosis, couldn't talk, couldn't speak. Edith was running the United States.
1: Was she the one that allowed that? Um, War bonds parade to go on in Philadelphia, even though they knew that the pandemic was out there and raging. Yeah, they
3: because here's the thing: Wilson's approach to the pandemic was one of let's keep it kind of low. We don't we don't want to panic all these people, and so you know, th- th- it's amazing that that pandemic, which we've now eclipsed, wasn't worse than it was.
1: Love talking history. Thank you, Mr. Hazelgrove. Congratulations, sir. Continued success. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care. 160 Minutes, the race to save the RMS Titanic. I used to go to Charlie Trotter's restaurant on occasion. He was not shy about his prices, but it was always very interesting to watch. Certainly, and one night in particular, I was able to sit in the kitchen. It was a New Year's Eve. Again, it uh, cost a few dollars, because Charlie would suggest... uh, a different wine for every course. And I want to get to a new documentary, which actually Richard Roper, uh, had a great review of today in the Sun Times in just a second. But as promised at today's White House COVID-19 response team briefing, CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky was talking about keeping the schools open. She's pretty, pretty happy with the, uh, With the progress thus far.
4: At the start of the year, we made it clear that we wanted children in school for in-person learning. And today, more than 95% are open full-time.
1: Okay, that's good news. Do the kids have to wear masks? And what happened in Arizona?
4: In this Arizona study, schools without a mask requirement were three and a half times likelier to have a COVID-19 outbreak than schools that require masks.
1: And then I saw Dr. Fauci, who is looking very, very fatigued and very sick of the same questions over and over and over. They brought him online and he was asked, what can we expect about the pandemic this winter? Are we heading for an iceberg? We don't expect
3: there to be any emergence of a variant that's going to outstrip the capability of delta however as we've always said and i'll repeat it again for clarity (laughs) a virus will not mutate or form a variant unless you give it the opportunity to replicate
1: in other words get the vaccine vaccination is the answer
3: to getting us to control
1: do you realize because of politics that poor guy has to have presidential-level Secret Service protection. I mean, come on, this is why we can't have nice things. The numbers are down, yes, Dr. Fauci? We need to get that curve to go much further down than it is because we're dealing
3: with a situation where you have a highly transmissible virus and where the dynamics of the virus are at eighty to 90,000 cases a day. That's not where
1: you want to be. Okay, well, we'll keep the progress, not perfection. We'll keep working on it. Thank you. That's, the, that's all you need to hear from the briefing at the White House today. As I mentioned, Charlie Trotter was a famous restaurateur here in Chicago, nationwide, worldwide. He was, a, he was an improviser, like his father, who was a great jazz trumpet player here in Chicago let's welcome rebecca halpern she is the director of love charlie which is a new charlie trotter documentary debuting next week at the chicago film festival rebecca welcome to double dallas how are you
4: i'm great john how are you
1: i'm doing very well were you a fan of charlie when he was alive
4: you know it's so funny because what i knew about charlie trotter was really limited to what the media had to say about him um my mom happened to be a food writer in Chicago in the nineties. And so I grew up hearing about him from her and hearing what a trailblazing maverick he really was. But when it came to the media, you know, they didn't always have the most flattering or nicest things to say. He seemed to be getting caught up in a lot of these gossipy spats all the time. Some of his, some were of his own making. And so when I got brought on to direct this film, I really just wanted to learn who he was as a person and understand what made him tick.
1: Was he kind of the precursor to all of these TV chefs we see now who scream and yell at the uh, the kitchen help?
4: 100%. You know, it's so interesting because Charlie came up before social media in 1987. He opened his restaurant in Chicago, uh, and it closed in 2012. So he really was right before everything um, broke open on the Internet. And, you know, he was best friends with Emeril Lagasse, so it was interesting. You know, it must have been an interesting time for him to watch Emeril's rise on the Food Network and the launch of the TV Food Celebrity But certainly what um, Charlie is known for in the media anyway, this sort of enfant terrible kind of uh, persona, is something that um, generations after him, Gordon Ramsay and others, have definitely taken uh, that torch and carried it on.
1: As I said, uh, I don't know if you heard, but I I sat in the kitchen one New Year's Eve at Charlie Trotter's, and it was it was unbelievably expensive because Charlie would bring you a, a glass of wine for every single course. And that added up very, very quickly. But I saw the environment. Would his kitchen be considered a hostile workplace environment in 2021?
4: I think the whole fine dining industry is, can be considered... Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say hostile by my own standards, but certainly by today's standards, many many kitchens are um, borderline hostile, if not abusive. And I think you see that with the fall of many of these o chefs. Like you know, Mario Batali comes to mind uh, as one um, where bad behavior is no longer you know being tolerated, and a new younger generation of chefs are coming out and they are not willing to stand for the kind of treatment that they used to get for better or for worse. I question if, um, I'm curious, I'll be curious to see if 20 years from now what happens to fine dining in America as a result of that and whether or not the quality actually goes down because of it.
1: I mentioned that Charlie's father was a terrific uh, jazz trumpeter based here in Chicago. Much like jazz artists, I think chefs, on Charlie Trotter's level, it can be unbelievably self-destructive. He had a lot of ups and downs personally, didn't he?
4: He really did. I mean, I think Charlie, Charlie before he opened the restaurant, was a young visionary dreamer named Chuck. Nobody called him Charlie Trotter. And <laughs> when he opened the restaurant, it was like he assumed he had he knew he had to play this role of chef Charlie Trotter in order to make it a success. And, you know, when you throw yourself headlong into playing a role for 25 years with so much pressure and so much, you know, on the line, I think that by the end of the restaurant, what you see in the film is that Charlie loses sight of himself. He forgets who Chuck really was. And he dies, tragically, a year after the restaurant closed.
1: I remember that last incident, which was all over TV at his restaurant, where he Oh, he was going to leave, and then he saw the TV cameras. He went back inside. He was actually letting his uh, property be used by some culinary students. It was just a just a big mess.
4: Yeah, it was an after school program, and I, I think there was a lot about Charlie Trotter that he kept private during his life that not many people knew about and so what the media and the general public had to go off of were these really embarrassing moments when he was caught on tape. In, in, in really the worst state that you could be in. Um, in the film, we reveal that he was actually suffering from an illness. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but um, the last few years of his life, the restaurant actually started to slip in quality because of his illness. And I think that um, that last year, without the structure of going into the office every day, the office, the kitchen, and working, And really, you know, continuing to pursue excellence like he had done for decades before, I think he kind of lost his way. And I think that his illness compounded with some personal choices that he made, whether it was alcohol or other things just didn't bode well for him and um he died almost a year to the like 13 months or something after the restaurant closed
1: i participate in that media pylon and i regret it rebecca i know it's going to uh, air at the chicago film festival will you put this on channel 11 at some point where can we see it
4: That's a good question. We are premiering at the festival next week. You can buy a virtual link online, or there's still tickets available for our second screening October 22nd. Um, And we are in the process of trying to find a distributor right now. So um, I will have more news on that front for you very, very soon.
1: Do you by chance use his uh, TV theme song? Because that was just a terrific, uh, terrific little theme song he had.
4: You know, his PBS show was revolutionary in its own right. It was award-winning. It won multiple James Beard awards. Um, We don't use the theme song, but it was very jazzy, to your point. You know, I'll just say this. We started production on day one of the COVID quarantine. So when you talk about Charlie Trotter being an improviser, um, we were forced to improvise every step of the way with this movie. And it really felt like he was some kind of, like, puppet master, you know, throwing us (laughs) for a loop at every opportunity to see if we could rise to the occasion. Mm
1: -hmm. Rebecca Halpern, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to seeing it wherever I can, as soon as I can, and uh, I appreciate you joining us this afternoon.
4: So happy to be here. Thanks so much.
1: Take care. This is John Howell Essential Cuts
0: on 890 WLS.
1: Mike Emanuel is the Fox News Chief Washington Correspondent. He'll be in the anchor chair again, high noon on Sunday, Central Time. It's always great to have Mike on this program. Mike Emanuel, welcome back to the Big 89. How are you, sir? John, thank you so much for having me. I watched a bit of the president, and I was surprised to learn today that L.A., the port already doesn't run 24-7. Here is uh, Joe Biden explaining that the presidential pen will make it uh, run 24-7. The port
2: of Los Angeles announced today that it's going to be begin operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
1: Again, I was surprised that uh, that wasn't already happening, and he's calling on retailers, large and small. We need major retailers who order the goods and the freight movers who take the goods from the ships to
2: factories and to stores to step up as well.
1: Not that this president needs more trouble. His uh, poll numbers are plummeting, obviously, but how big of a concern is the supply chain uh, at the White House this week?
5: Huge. Absolutely huge. They are scared to death that uh, Christmas gifts may be delayed, and when you're looking at your approval numbers, uh, all you need is a year without a Santa Claus, and the approval numbers go down the tubes. And so, uh, like you, I was shocked to know that Long Beach and L.A.'s ports were not operating 24-7, so we'll see if that uh makes a difference when you consider all the goods coming in from China and from Asia um, and, and whether that can help some of the supply line problems we're having across this great country. Um, but, yeah, they're clearly worried about that because uh, already some people are warning, like, hey, Christmas time, you may want to put your order in now because it's going to take a while.
1: Have any memes uh, of Biden as the Grinch popped up on Twitter yet?
5: <laughs> i'm on the lookout but i have not seen any just just yet john we'll, we'll let you know
1: what's the state of the negotiations between all oh, the white house and a couple senators maybe mansion cinema uh,
5: uh, it seems like they are baffling uh, the white house because mansion and cinema have made it quite clear uh, their positions on the massive spending package and you know so far the white house just can't understand why they are not coming around. And so uh, it sounds like they're not going terribly well. And and we've heard some on the left, the progressives, saying, well, maybe what we can do is do like a five-year package. And so we could still spend a whole lot of money, but just do it in five years. And, you know, the dirty secret here in Washington is once Washington starts giving out goodies, it's virtually impossible to stop because then you get the ads of grandma you know, being pushed off the cliff if you think about trimming something back and so you know mansion has come out and said uh, you know basically that he thinks it's a gimmick to to cut the funding you know to five years instead of ten um, and he's concerned that it creates more massive entitlements that we really can't afford as we're approaching twenty nine trillion dollars in debt
1: is mcconnell serious said hey chuck schumer i gave you a mulligan but that said no more help ever
5: yeah, I mean, I think he got a lot of, you know, grief
1: from his own
5: fellow Republicans about it. Like I thought, you know, basically saying, I thought we we're going to put up a fight on this one, Mr. Leader. And uh, we look like we caved. And the narrative is that Mitch McConnell blinked. Um, and so I think he is going to be very stiff uh, when it comes around in December and basically say, you know, hey, Democrats, you were warned for months that you needed to take care of this. And so good luck. Um, So we'll see how the fight plays out. Um, You know, of course, they're not going to do anything between now and probably on or about December 3rd when it's crisis time. Um, But, you know, we'll see if if they come up with some other plan, Democratic leadership, to address this in a a less crisis-filled way.
1: Happy holidays. No presents under the trees and the debt ceiling goes down. Happy holidays to all of us.
5: <laughs> exactly right. You know, every every year Christmas time, we're like you know, oh, funding's running out. Oh, they're not going to you know mess up Christmas again, are they?
1: <laughs> that's truly oh, yeah. a war on Christmas. That is truly a war on Christmas. Oh, they'll punt
5: it to December twenty seventh. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's, that's always a good time. So.
1: <laughs> That'll be fun. So Donald Trump has already endorsed the primary challenger to Liz Cheney out in Wyoming. But she was raising some significant dollars until the news today that a certain tech billionaire has decided to go against her. This has got to be a big concern for the Bush Cheney, what remains of the Bush Cheney wing in the Republican Party.
5: Yeah, no doubt about it. Peter Thiel giving $5,800 to Harriet Hageman's campaign uh, to oust Liz Cheney. So you've got woman-on-woman, woman, so it's not like you're, you know, supporting some dude against Liz Cheney. It's a female-female contest, uh, and evidently she's going to be able to raise a lot of money because Teal gave 5800 which is the max he can contribute to a candidate, and we expect her fundraising numbers to come out uh, probably around Friday, and so... We'll see who else is lining up to back her. And and I'm fascinated by this race because, obviously, I'm I'm aware that President Trump's approval in Wyoming was huge uh, while he was in office. But, you know, the Cheneys also have a tremendous name ID across the great state of Wyoming. And so uh, this could be quite a nuclear battle uh, between two different wings of the Republican Party. And we'll see how it all plays out.
1: I've talked to you about this previously, but I love your memories of Dick Cheney when he was VP. Oh,
5: yeah. I would interview him and ask him questions, and he was, you know, he's a very disciplined guy. And I'd start veering off topic and start asking him about, you know, something uh... he didn't want to talk about, and he'd say, "We're not here to talk about that," and you know, move on. And so <laughs> I'd just sit there and kind of stare at him for a minute, see if I could get him to blink and. He, he wanted no part of
1: it. Did he ever say, if you don't uh, stop with this line of question, I'm going to show you an undisclosed location in the deep basement of the executive office building?
5: Yeah, I was always hoping he'd take me to the bunker and show me around, but uh, you know, I was, then again, he might have left me there, so yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe not.
1: Several Republican-led states are looking to fight the administration's vaccine mandate for private businesses. How big of an influence is Greg Abbott right now in D.C.?
5: I think pretty considerable, because I think um you know he has a fair number of supporters who are behind him thinking that he's fighting the good fight, and that you know some of these mandates are are going just too far. Um, you know, obviously, there are a lot of folks who are concerned about trying to uh, end this Covid nightmare sooner rather than later. um but I think there's also a certain segment of the population that says that Big brother may be going too far and should be challenged in court. After all, you know, America's based on a constitution, and, and let the, you know, nine people in black robes sort out what's okay and what's going too far. And so uh, Greg Abbott's leading a fight. Uh, you know, I think DeSantis is right there with him in Florida, and uh, we'll see where this all gets sorted out. I'm I'm certain it will end up at the Supreme Court at some point.
1: I didn't realize until I was talking with a writer yesterday that Desantis, who would be the odds-on favorite right now just based on his record in Florida, is only 43 years old. But as long as the former president is considering running, he's just—it's like uh, he's—you he's, know—he's got cement boots on at this point.
5: Yeah, it's a very uh, tricky spot for him because until President Trump says what his intentions are for 2024, if you step out in front of him, you know all you're you're going to get a nasty public statement and perhaps something on camera at some point uh... hammering you and then you lose a significant portion of the republican party not the entire republican party uh... but you know obviously the former president had a lot of people vote for him in twenty twenty and and a lot of people are thinking that it would be bad form to step out before the former president makes his intentions known and so it's it's a delicate thing because you know obviously all these people don't want to be sitting on the sidelines and and find out that you know maybe the former president decides he doesn't want to run so they're they're kind of jockeying but not wanting to get in front of him you know dropping a hammer on them.
1: And finally, since it involves the Washington Football Club, the NFL Washington Football Club, that must be ricocheting around the uh, the 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 uh, D.C. area regarding the. Emails that were released, and John Gruden, and that involves, of course, uh, former members of the Washington Football Club. Has a Reese Snyder yet?
5: No, that's the stunning thing about it. You've got like forty women who worked in one capacity or another. For the Redskins at the time now the Washington football team and there 650,000 emails that the investigators were combing through and that yet there was a selective leak to take out the coach of the Oakland Raiders no, not the Oakland Raiders, forgive me, the yeah. Las Vegas Raiders, right. John Gruden and so, um, yeah, I think a lot of folks are saying, well, what about Snyder? Like, this was a sketchy operation here in Washington, all kinds of stuff with the cheerleaders and sexual harassment in the front office office and you know all kinds of allegations and now some legal action being taken but uh, apparently somebody in the league office or somewhere decided they wanted to nuke the coach of the las vegas raiders and we haven't heard much about the owner of the washington franchise which many fans here would love to get rid
1: of boy career trajectories can change in a heartbeat nowadays huh yeah
5: i mean you know emails from 10 11 years ago when he was an analyst for monday night football and you know Not defending stuff he said, but I'm sure he never thought that it would get out. I thought, you know, he probably thought he was just having a private conversation with an old friend and uh, it
1: ruined his life. This is why here in Chicago, uh, those in the know only talk under the L when a train's passing above.
3: (laughs) Well, that's the way to
1: go. Never write anything down and don't talk on the phone. I told you a thousand times. All right, Mr. Manuel, thank you. We'll watch for you in the anchor chair Sunday at high noon on Fox News. Appreciate your time. Have a great week. You're the best, John. Thank you so Take much for here. Mike Emanuel joining us here on the Big 89. John Howell Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John
0: Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.